Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 75 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and what matters on this episode is, of course, the great distance debate. As regular listeners to State of the Game already know, this is not a new topic for us here. In fact, driving distance at the elite levels of the game and the impact of that on the golf courses of the world was one of the key issues that led us to launch the podcast way back in 2012. But while it's always been high on our agenda, there has been a flare-up in the general golf media in recent weeks. First, after Jack Nicklaus talked about the issue at the Honda Classic, then this week again, after the USGA and the RNA released their annual distance report. What's happened since has been nothing short of remarkable, as emotions have been stirred on all sides of what might be one of the most divisive issues in the game. So what to make of it all? Well, for thoughts on that and lots more about what's going to happen, let me bring in two of the game's most prominent voices on this topic and others, and my co-hosts slash guests for today. From the US, writer, blogger, critic, author, commentator, and one-third of a much-publicised and highly emotional Golf Journal debate yesterday, <laughs> Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, as always, it's been too long since our last episode, but also as I always... I was not emotional. <laughs> I was very level-headed, but yeah. Um, yes, good to be here, Ron. And uh, this is... We, we should note that we generally uh, discuss a drinking game when we do this podcast, but for us, we don't usually record at this late hour when it is a, a, a cocktail hour. So I don't know. Should we be, every time we mention the ball, actually the whole show is about the ball, so that, forget that. I, I, I haven't got enough beer here for that, check, so we'll just have yeah, to exactly. <laughs> make It would just be nonstop. For every minute that goes by without mentioning the ball, maybe we can have a drink. That'll keep us off the booze. Perfect. Uh, no doubt Looking forward to sinking our teeth into this topic today. From here in Australia, a man who's as passionate about this issue and its impact on the game as anyone in the world. It's former touring professional columnist, golf course architect, and I think it's fair to say... Twitter warrior, Mike Clayton. Clayton, mm. you might have been the world's busiest man the past couple of days. Bushfires on all fronts. Looking forward to getting your thoughts in a forum that allows a bit more than 280 characters, my friend. Yeah, that's not quite enough, and it's not the place to be debating it with some people. But anyway, it is what it is. Let's talk about it because it's all over Twitter and it's all over the PGA Tour and it's all over the Titleist website and it's all over Matt Adams and Jeff and Jaime Diaz. Jaime was a very good voice of reason in that debate last night, I thought. Yeah, so Not I. that you weren't, Jeff. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So please. I, I didn't say a whole lot, so that helped. Yeah. Uh, just, just on I that. Thought, Heine, just stoked a few little, you know, logs. That's all. Heine's royalty, though, isn't he? In all seriousness, Jeff. I mean, he is one of the great thinkers of the game and a, 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 a true voice of calm and reason. He is golf he is. royalty. He is calm. He is. Yeah, he's... Uh, He's phenomenal. Let's start at the, well, try to start sort of at the beginning, Jeff. I, I kind of guess I said that, you know, we've been on about this for the last six years. Generally speaking, we've been on about it for a lot longer than that. Um, you've been right there in the engine room, so to speak. Have you been surprised by how quickly this has blown up? I mean, I think you wrote the book on this in 2004, if I'm not mistaken. We seem to be the only ones who've chatted about it the last half decade. Now everybody's talking about it. You've been caught by surprise at all by the reaction to this, what's essentially a report that says nothing from the USGA and the RNA. Yeah, yeah, that's, I guess that would be the surprising part, that there is, uh, I think what happened, Rod, that we've seen, and I'm, and I, it really is uh, obvious to me, and I'd be curious if, if you two feel this way, but <laughs> I think we had a whole bunch of people ready to react to something, um, and so they just still went ahead with their reactions, even though the report um, backed off of things. I think the report was going to be stronger uh, from everything that I, I gleaned, and then they, they ended up deciding to go a little bit more 
uh, with a, a cautious approach and a more study a- approach. I don't think they were ever going to say in this report, this is what has to be done. I think it was always going to be a starting point. And uh, they just maybe softened the language uh, in the days before the report. But then you have these reactions that appear to have been prepared in anticipation of something far worse. Or or, or I say worse, but more more dramatic. More dramatic, exactly. Some sort of potential plan of action, which is exactly what we didn't get. I I was talking to Clates about this last night. It, It almost feels like, Jeff... Jack Nicholas might have let the cat out of the bag. I'm not sure Mike Davis expected or wanted Jack to go ahead and mention the dinner conversation they had. What's your take on that? Because that's really where it started. Well, there's yeah, I agree with that. Although there are two schools of thought on that. One school is the thought is that he helped sort of make it a, a, a. It was a soft launch. It was the first blow to kind of get out there and let people hear it. Um, the bad news is he threw that 20% number out, and that's going to be something that people seize on uh, for, for a long time, and that's what uh, got people all uh, worked up and uh, very upset, and, and pros are still citing that. Jimmy Walker did today on Twitter. and So I think that that uh, probably did set the tone, but it, it, it still fascinates me that the greatest player of all time and the other greatest player of all time have both come out with this position. They have no financial incentive whatsoever. Mm. Um, Well, I mean, uh, Tiger's with Bridgestone, but I I don't see how he's going to make a lot of money advocating this position. Jack Nicklaus is not going to make money advocating this position. And they are are putting themselves uh, out there for criticism and headaches and nonsense. Um, So... They are doing this because they love the game and they see an issue in the sport. And so it fascinates me that there is so much vitriol uh, directed towards them, at least with Tiger. Um, Most of the lunatics who said he spoke out on this because he can't hit the ball any longer uh, anymore. And when he comes back, he's just going to be 50 yards behind everybody. They at least have to go and shut up now because he did leave the field at the Honda in driving distance. Yeah. yeah. So. That's interesting. <laughs> Let's go right to the beginning, Clates, and I want to hear more from you than we normally do on this show, which is generally my fault for not coming to you often enough. Simple question. Why is distance a problem at the top end of the game? Well, for me, it's the scores are a distraction. As Brandel Sambly said the other day on Twitter, you know, look at Marion and Oakmont, and I think Oakland Hills was the other course he quoted. The scores are still high, one over par, one at Marion, so everything's okay, which is, well, that might be fine if you want to smother all the great championship courses in the world with the US Open rough, but if you did that at Royal Melbourne or Kingston Heath or St Andrews or Sunningdale or Moorfontaine or the National Golf Links or Sandhills, or, you destroy the whole element of what those courses are about, which is playing at the sides of the fairways and opening up angles and so anyone can distort the score and raise the score so it's a, so a high score wins. So everyone thinks, well, it's okay because the scores are still high. But that's not, I don't think, the debate. The debate is about how the courses play at the top level and what, you know, what Bobby Jones and Alison McKenzie and that era thought a true test of a round of golf should include, which was long shot par fours that sometimes were fairway woods, drives and fairway woods, you know, a test of par fours that were long irons and middle irons and short irons and three-shot par fives and two-shot par fives and long one-shot holes and 
that was what they saw as encompassing the elements of a great course. And that was what St Andrews would ask and answer and Augusta and all the great championship courses. And all that's been thrown out the window and completely distorted by how far the ball goes at the top level. So, and I don't, I've said, me, I don't care what the Americans do to their championship courses particularly, but what bothers me is that Australia doesn't have a voice at the table. Kind of does in John Hopkins as a chairman of the board goes to the RNA meetings, but no one's going to listen to what Australia says. And we have a whole bunch of great courses, Kingston Heath, Royal Melbourne, that are holding the Australian Open in 2020, probably the, the President's Cup next year, that are reliant, that are short golf courses now. And I'd hate to see, as I saw in 1998, Tiger Woods did a driving nine under the second hole of par five. Jeff, you were there, I think. Where, yeah, that was a hole that McKenzie designed as a long two-shot hole yeah. to be reached with a three-wood or a four-iron. You know, it has an utter distortion of what arguably the greatest architect ever wanted and, and how Bobby Jones is the most revered figure in American golf ever. You know, how they thought the game should play. And I haven't seen any arguments since that have changed my mind that there's a better way to play the game. And it's certainly not with a drive and a wedge. Mm. So I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the, the thing we need to determine is that if you take 30 yards off Dustin Johnson or 10%, of course, 20%, 20% sounds like a good number. And it sounds like the sort of number you would throw off the top of your head because the ball does go so far. But 10% is fine. But, you know, I just – I've lost my point a bit. But um... I guess the point you're making, Clates, and this is the point – this is what I think. Yeah. Uh, the, the debate gets – it feels like there are two types of golfers. There are those who are interested in their own game and equipment and, and a whole side of the game that doesn't particularly interest me. But that's okay. People are entitled to be that. And those who are on in that sort of a camp, they don't see any kind of problem because the further you hit the ball, the easier it becomes to beat the course, so to speak. Whereas I think where we come from is we're on the side of golf courses because I think that's what sets the game apart. Yeah. Do you think it's that simple that they're the kind of black and white camps? If you're interested in the swing and the playing of the game and shooting the score, that the ball going further isn't a problem. But if you're interested in the courses and the challenge that golf can provide and all the deeper and more nuanced things that come from that uh, and the enjoyment of that. That's how it feels to me, that it's almost that simple, that black and white. There's two sides there. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the, the accusation is, well, you, you know, you, you want to go back to the gutter perch of ball and, you know, you want to go and live in the, you know, you want to go and live in the past. When the past was, when we're talking about the past, of course we're not talking about the gutter perch of ball or the hickory shaft or the ball, the spalling dot that Ben Hogan played. We're talking about the the tour below 100, the 1998 ball. You know, this is everything is pre and post the Pro V1 Titleist ball. And people, you know, the, the RNA quote, the distance increases for the last three years. They're utterly irrelevant. I mean, I mean the, the, the relevant date is the launch of the Pro V, which was what, 2000? So, so that's where you've got to look at when the distance question exploded. And it was almost 20 years ago. Mm. So, so, you know. But you know, I, I I find it offensive when people belittle uh, those of us who make that comment and throw out the gutta percha and the hickory and all that. Um, the game somehow thrived with those awful clubs, and there. So 
there was something to that game. The game we, the sport mm-hmm. we're playing today, uh, got here because people loved that game. So don't be disrespectful to the people of the past. They handed us something, and we we have a an obligation to have some sort of stewardship, but also some respect for the fact that they enjoyed that version of the game with those clubs. Uh, and so I, I just I, it, I know I understand it's a rhetorical thing and you have people desperate to to uh, to, to make a point and uh, and and it works in these kinds of debates but it's 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 obnoxious and, and and furthermore while we're on that subject and this is what in the debate you talked about yesterday what Clates just has been talking about it, I, I find it just the, the hypocrisy so breathtaking uh, when these people in, in the leadership of the game want to go back to the great venues. They want to milk history. They call Jack Nicholas every time they need something, whether to <laughs> sign a flag or show up for something. Mm-hmm. And then when he actually dares to take a position that does not make him money, that is not going to do anything but create headaches for him, they poo-poo it, or, or worse, they show great disrespect for him. Uh, or they show great disrespect for the golf courses that, again, grew this game, made this sport special, and then we have this special gift that we can return to those courses. And then suddenly, when something maybe puts that in jeopardy, uh, they side with with the element of of uh, of money or. I don't even know what they're siding with. It, it, it's well, just peculiar. So the hypocrisy is just its just revolting. I mean, it's really some of these people who are leading the game. Uh, are, are, I'm just I'm ashamed for them. I'm ashamed right now for, for Jay Monahan and Pete Bavacqua, and I'll stop right there because it's, yeah. it's just their statements it, this yeah. week were disgusting. Mm. And, and people talk about you know the entertainment. I go back to that. I've tweeted it 100 times now. Does people think Arnold Palmer wasn't entertaining? Right. Uh, yeah. Arguably, arguably – <laughs> The most with, entertaining. With Severiano Ballesteros, the two most entertaining players of my lifetime. I never saw Hagen play. And, I mean, and Tiger Woods, of course, and, and Jack. But, um, you know, I've tweeted that Mark McCormick's annual 1969 US Open, the club's Arnold Palmer hit on a 7,000-yard golf course. It, the irons he hit, he averaged a four-iron into the par fours. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tommy... Dustin Johnson, maybe he's a, a slightly better athlete than Arnold Palmer. You know, he's five inches taller and his arms are a bit longer. But don't tell me Arnold Palmer wasn't a great athlete and a strong man who pounded the ball and who played amazing golf. And does someone want to tell me they, they don't want to see the best players in the world averaging a four iron for their second shots in par fours at the US Open? That's not entertaining? They'd mm. rather watch nine irons? I mean, what are they on about? Mm. Yeah. I, you know, before you get to, and that is something that comes up a lot: the entertainment factor. And again, yeah. the roar, no, but there's never been a roar that's gone through the pines at Augusta over uh, a tee a, shot, a tee from, shot. <laughs> with a driver. Yeah. Yep, you're absolutely right about that. Just, I want to go back, Clay. And you've made this argument a number of times. A lot of people may have heard it, but for those who haven't, your take on sort of the history of the game and how equipment and courses have developed to where we are now, because I think it's interesting, and people might not have thought about it in this way. You have. On another podcast down here in Australia, I was, I was interested again to hear it. So, for those who might not have heard it, what's your theory about the way causes and equipment have developed together? Well, a friend of mine, Noel Terry, is a, one of the is a nut about. In fact, he was the guy who found Davy Strath's grave in the Melbourne Cemetery. Who it was Tom Young, Tom Morris's great rival, who had uh, consumption TB, I think, is what it was, 
And he came out to Melbourne to, to try and save his life and he'd get out of the Scottish winter and he died out here. And so Noel Terry's a history nut and he, he explained to me about the, the, how the early clubs were made and when they attached, and I might get this wrong and someone can help, can set us straight if this is wrong, but he was talking about how heavy the necks had to be to attach the shafts into the necks. So, so all the sweet spots were close to the neck and the clubs were incredibly rudimentary. And you look at the putting greens, it was like putting on the fairways. And it took, look, I don't know, 30, 25 or 30 open championships before someone broke 300. And 75 was a great score. So you, you would argue that if there was a, a balance to be had between the equipment and the player, it was clearly in favour of the equipment and the golf courses. It was a, it was a really difficult game yeah. in young Tom Morris's time. It was incredibly yeah. difficult. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Peter Ellis talk, commentates, I heard him say, it was years ago, he said, he said, look, all these players are great. But he said, wow, he said, I've got great admiration for those guys that play with hickory shafts. Mm. He, he said, maybe they were the best players ever. Mm. Yeah. So, the, you know, Harry Varden became a great champion. Bobby Jones, arguably the great, one of the four greatest players ever with hickory. And, and I, I would argue the balance was probably still tipped in favour of the golf courses. Then ball manufacturing got better. Uh, steel shafts came into the game. McGregor started making great woods. The irons got better. And the balance from 1930 to, to 1990, to the pre-Prover era, was pretty good. I mean, Jack sort of brought on an extra dimension of power that was followed by Seve and Greg. But those guys averaged 280 yards off the tee. And, and the balance between the equipment and the golf course and the player was, you know, the scores came down and, you know, Nicholas shot the record at Bobbis Roll, but... You know, the balance I would have thought was pretty good. I mean, Greg was still hitting uh, what he hit at the last hole of Augusta when he lost it. Well, he hit the four iron of the iron. crowd. Yeah. Four iron of the crowd. I mean, hey, Lou, yeah. two, iron to, two iron to the 18th green when he won the Open in 74 at Wingfoot. Greg, when he hit it in the grandstand, hit a six iron. And Jeff Ogilvy, when he drove it in the divot, hit a nine iron. So, so from 1974 to 2006, and of course, the conditions may have been different. I don't know what the wind was, or you know. But Irwin was hitting a two iron to one of the great holes in American golf, and Ogilvy was hitting a nine iron. So that's how much the game has changed and, and been distorted. And, and you know, Jeff would be the first guy to say that the game would be better if they were hitting two irons to the eighteenth green at Wingfoot than nine irons. Mm, sure. so, so, you know, the Pro V came out, the Hybrid Club came out. Roger Cleveland started making great wedges. And then we've got the frying pan head drivers with titanium and graphite shafts, 30, 45 inches long. So now clearly the balance is way in favour of the player. And, you know, and the golf courses are helpless. I mean, Merrion's a, you know, unless you smother Merrion in, in, in long grass and narrow fairways and long rough around the greens, the course is utterly helpless. And, and make the greens rock hard, put them at 13. Then, of course, one over par is going to win. And Brandle Chambly says, well, that's all okay. Well, Brandle, when, when, when they come and, play the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne next year with 60-yard wide fairways. And, and unless the greens are rock hard and 15, every hole there's a drive. Well, that's what we have. We have the greens have become yeah. the last defense, and, yeah. and that's uh, is their skill in in that uh, speed of a green. I don't even know if there is. The firmness, maybe, but but, it, but at those speed speeds. Uh, they're frightening, aren't they? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. The- Check and we might run through some of the arguments. 
vaccine running. I think pretty much all the arguments have now been put up. We'll come to the biggest one that the anti-rollback people will pull up possibly last because I think it's the most important to think about. Clates has talked Shaq quite clearly at the end of his little speech was the ball is not the only contributing factor. So why are we targeting the ball? This oh. is a question that people ask. The, the, okay. Yeah, clearly yeah. clearly the, the driver heads, the hybrid, as he said, improvements in shafts and improvements in both and and athleticism amongst the players. There's no question Dustin Johnson's body has been built to play golf. Surely he's going to hit it longer. Why are we trying to stop these people from doing that? No, I actually want him to have... I think he deserves more of an advantage for for what he brings to the he table. He could be the nor- he could be the Norman of his generation, of couldn't he? He could be the greatest driver of the ball we'd ever seen. Give him equipment that well, tested your driving. Absolutely, career. and he tried briefly to um, uh, make a case when he was sitting with Tiger, and it was you know it's just not his strength to to sit there and say it. But you could you could read between the lines. His point was, I'm actually not getting the. Uh, benefits that I should compared to what other people get out of the equipment. It wasn't belittling his equipment. What he was saying was there are people who are getting more out of this than I am. And I don't like that. I had some, a great chat with Adam Scott at Riviera about this. And, you know, he's such a, a gentleman and he's so humble. He, he, he doesn't want to sit there and go, well, you know, I'm, I'm still one of the best ball strikers in in the world. And I'm, I'm getting robbed a little bit. He's not going to say it that way, but I basically said that. (laughs) And, and it's true. And, but what's fun is that we are having better players starting to recognize the skill part of the argument. I know that's not what you just asked. Um, but that is something to keep in mind. That's, that's, that's complicating this matter for good players. Might be important too, Shaq. Well, it's very important because we're finally seeing good players actually go, uh, Something's not quite right here. Uh, I don't quite. I'm not sure. I'm. I'm enjoying the game, or it's. I'm not sure that this game is as interesting as it should be, or is this all this stuff kind of bringing everybody together? There are a lot of different elements that you hear good players starting to realize. So that's that's fantastic. But yes, to your question, why the ball? The ball uh, is always uh, and and brought up because it's in theory potentially the easiest thing to um, control if you are trying to address this problem. My view, I did a post uh, recently in, uh, on the weekend in, re- in regards to a uh, question that Alan Shipnuck got, and I've actually downgraded the ball, and I feel like if you put you know, arrows up and down that the ball is becoming less of a factor now. And I'd be curious what, what Clayt's... Uh, feels on this because the more I saw, I see of good players, the more it's the combination of, uh, of fitness, instruction, track man, and melding all of those things together. And the, and the brain power that has, has been brought to making players better, that that is now going to be the next wave of elements that just make distances go crazy. And, Couple that with young people who have. We now are just about ready to be uh, rid of anybody who grew up the game in fear of the snap hook, uh, yeah. with with the old clubs. 
Tiger and Phil are the end of that that era. The Champions Tour guys obviously still remember little tiny driver heads and 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 quack hooks and weird weird reactions from clubs. But now the clubs are so well made, the technology is so good, the instruction is so good. Um, Jeff Ogilvy, I mean, we should just have him on on a, to do a show about TrackMan and instruction and 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 how. He has some brilliant things to say about the video camera and how awful that was for for people of our era. Um, but you put that together, and you now have ten to eighteen year olds who are learning the game to swing a certain way and create such speed mm. that you know we are just beginning. I, I'm convinced from from people who know much more about this stuff that we are just beginning to see spikes the this is about to get really nuts and that's why again why people like jay monahan who knows better people vacua brilliant really smart guys putting themselves out there and not talking to people on the ground going hey guys first of all there are big changes going on here and second of all it's it's they're not going backwards okay they're going to go and places you cannot believe and it's going to lead to slower play it's going to lead to all these things we already see and so it blows my mind that they they took the stance they did. Anyway, but, uh, was, but that's why. But back to the ball. The ball, I believe, and I think Clates would agree. Seemingly, in theory, is the would be the easiest thing to change uh, to address some of this for the architectural side of the argument. Of yeah. all the imperfect solutions facing us, Jeff, it is the simplest. Correct. Isn't it? Correct. Yeah, they're all imperfect. I, mean, I would. But it's the easiest. I would to love to see a driver head size uh, yeah. open. Uh, every time Wally Uline writes to me uh, and mentions that, and nobody mentions the driver head size, and I said, so "What I always say, I, I I can't wait. I mean, it would be it would be fantastic. By the way, if we <laughs> held a tournament at Harbor yes. Town, let's say it's Harbor Town, and that week the manufacturers have to provide a driver of a certain size. Mm-hmm. Well, all week it's going to be stories about guys working with their team at mm-hmm. fill in the blank." And we made this adjustment and, you know, it's, I've been practicing with it on the side and you know what, actually it's kind of made me a better driver with my, my, my bigger driver, but we'll see how it goes this week. And yeah, it would be utterly fascinating. And, uh, it, 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 nobody wants, none of those people want to help make it happen. Sorry. Quite. So two things. Um, the first thing that listened to Jeff was surely the more difficult the shorter the ball goes, the more difficult the ball is to play with, the greater the advantage the best players have. Now, my question, and I'm just asking the question, those guys are the ones who get paid the most by the manufacturers. So has their silence been bought by the manufacturers would be my first question. My second question was, I was tweeting with a tour player this morning and he sent me a tweet saying, I've heard the head tailor-made guy say he hopes guys start hitting at 400 plus. He said, how disgusting is that? I almost threw up when I heard it. So, you know, and, and my point back to him was, which goes to your point, Jeff, about track man, about instruction, about 10-year-old kids who they, they know they're going to have to be smashed as if they want to succeed at the highest level of the game. Yeah. Is that what happens in, tw- I mean, we all remember when, John Daly came out at Crooked Stick and did what he did. And the world was utterly astounded at what happened there. Now, Daly was a 295 hitter probably on average. I mean, he was certainly 10 or 15 yards longer than Greg, maybe even 300. So now it's, it's certainly – it's probably 20 yards longer on average. I mean, Johnson's probably 20 yards longer than Daly was. So what happens in 20 years when there's some kid 
who's 20 hours longer than Johnson, and people start saying, well, you don't want to go back to 2018 because that was really boring. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, mm. was, was watching Sam Snead boring or Ben Hogan or Jack Nicholson? Around? I mean, golf has never been boring to watch. And it's it's never been survived those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, once a guy, I remember watching Norman and Sebi and Nicholas and Watson blast the ball, and every everybody who saw those tee shots were in awe of how far they went. Now that it goes 30 hours longer, can, can anybody really tell the difference? I mean, no, once you can. see a beautiful, once you see a beautiful, powerful swing with great speed, the ball crashed out of the middle of the club with a beautiful flight, does it really matter if it goes 280 or 320? I mean, can anyone really tell the difference? Mm, what about the sound, no, clouds? I'd love to do I the think sound. The sound is the sound. I think we've discussed this. It'd be great to do a focus group, yeah, uh, on the difference between those two. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Two eighty and three twenty. Well, and on tele- and let's be honest, on television, even with the uh, Pro Tracer, uh, it really makes absolutely no difference because distance no. is only relative in golf. Long doesn't win; longer wins. So if if we yeah, decide yeah. to set long at two hundred, two twenty is longer. You have an advantage. You change the numbers from two to three to four. It doesn't change the basic concept. Clates, you're in a unique position to talk about this. You're a, you've made a living playing the game for two and a half decades, which is a staggering feat, which people don't give the credit that it's due. My wife might dispute that, but anyway, go. On. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you, you you were. You are, and you still play. Well, you played in a program today. You still play professionally. You were around when the change came. The two thousand solid core ball Pro V one, whatever you want to call it, change came. What were your observations mm-hmm. of both? Well, in fact, let's go back a bit. The titanium big headed drivers, and then the ball. Not long after, that was really the upshot. That's where the two big spikes. What were your observations? Well, I was kind of forty something, forty two or three, so and I wasn't playing any good, so it didn't make any difference to me. I mean, I was one of the last holdouts with a wooden driver on the European Tour. I changed in 1994, I think, because I thought that... Yeah, because I... I mean, I tried playing with that small-headed, tailor-made driver, which some guys could hit. I thought it was a disgusting club. And you look at it now, it was like... It's a... Almost an unusable club when you look at it now. Because what it did for me was, if I hit it in the neck, instead of cutting, cutting, turning starting left and cutting back, it went straight left. If I hit it in the toe, instead of starting right and hooking, it went straight right. I mean, I couldn't use the thing at all. So I was kind of, I was a a fringe career-ended tour player when the Pro V came out. So I didn't really, I certainly didn't gain anything from it because I couldn't hit the ball far enough to get anything from it. Which is the other question is, I mean, Brad Klein, I think, was tweeting out the other day that you've got to swing the thing at 115 miles an hour to get anything out of it anyway. So, so I never saw the increase. And guys like Andrew Coltart was a good example. Ryder Cup player, 1999, played against Tiger. You know, a, a nice player, played like John Vanderbilt. When the new ball came out, he got nothing out of it and his career was over. Yet other guys got huge spikes in the distance out of it. So it affected different players differently. Mm. But, but all I saw was, you know, I saw Tiger Woods emerge and play that President's Cup in 1998. And I saw within two or three years which were the relevant years in this debate. You know, great courses like Kingston Heath and Royal Melbourne and Victoria and Metropolitan, all the great sandbelt courses, play so much shorter. And, and the test be, in my eyes, so much less interesting. Give me an example, Clotes. What, what did Greg Norman hit into? You picked the hole at Kingston Heath uh, in his heyday. Well, and what did Nicholas Colsarts hit into that at the World Cup last year? Well, 
Norman, when he won the Open at Kingston Heath in 1994, well, it's not fair because it was into the win. Yeah, I mean, he hit a five iron into 15, 160 yard part, a beautiful low five iron through the wind to about 15. It was a great shot, to about 15 feet with a five iron, 160 yards. So 17 was into the wind. So, but he, he must have hit two or three iron over the hill, blanched it over the hill. John Rand drove it on top of the hill in the, in the World Cup. John Rand could see that green. I mean, that was that was a par five when Mackenzie built it. He drove it 60 yards off the green. But I remember the 1979 Australian Open, and in fairness, it was Power Fairways, not Santa Ana Fairways, which is a fun. Oh. Old ADT at Metropolitan. There's a new T40 yards back now. So it's a hole I've played my whole life. It's 400, and, it's 400 metres long. And I, I, I was on the, on the tee. I watched Greg's, you know, when Greg smashed a drive, Greg smashed a drive. He had a drive a five line. You know, I played with Lucas Michelle the other day off the same tee, and Short was down when with the Santa Ana fairway. He drove it 80, 70 metres from the front of the green. So, not a five I mean, Graham Mark, I think, in that same open, who finished shot behind Greg three part the last, Jack Newton won. Graham Marsh in that open had a driver forward on the 18th green. So, so Marshy was driver forward, Greg was driver five on. And now the whole, if they put up that team now, in, in every professional event with no wind, every player gets a drive in the wedge. Hmm. 400 metres for those in the US and now about 440 odd yards, roughly 10%. Yeah. That's, a, that's about the 440 odd yards, which is considered a sort of a medium length par four in this day and age, isn't it, Shaq? Why isn't John Rahm driving it to the top of the hill on 17 at Kingston Heath just entertaining and why don't we grumpy old men get over ourselves, Jeff Shackleford? Why is that a bad thing? Why, why do we not like it? Oh, oh sometimes it's. It's wildly entertaining um, when when a player takes a risk and reward. You know, I, I I still remain fascinated that people were offended when Dustin Johnson took a chance on that last hole at uh, Glen. Uh, oh, geez, uh, the place dri- where they played the, uh, the water. Yeah, yeah, and Spieth had to go down the right. And people, I had a lot of people say, well, so out well, there you go. There's the problem. I went, well, no, he, that's actually <laughs> exciting. He, he took a risk and was rewarded with a flip wedge. And that was due to his strength, his courage under pressure, and um, his skill. And that, to me, was exciting. Um, but it's, the problem, Rod, is it's very hard to design holes for that. And, in fact, I'm pretty sure that hole was not designed for that play. So we've seen holes that have gotten more interesting as more players can drive uh, the greens because they often are ingeniously designed holes uh, no matter what. There are many of them, and they uh, expose mistakes uh, no matter what. However, it is so difficult to design those really great strategic holes, and, and there are so few in golf that really, truly are fascinating to watch somebody play. And so that's kind of at the, the, the core of what um, those of us like uh, Clates and I who, who, who take the point of view on this from the architecture point of view, not the scoring or all the other, other stuff, or wanting to you know see the companies uh, fail, all that nonsense that's thrown at us. Um, it Really, it's all about uh, the architecture and wanting to uh, see players face some of the same kind of decisions that they used to have to face and that somehow managed to build this game into a, a sport that people love. Mm. And 
uh, arguably, to your point, Jeff, the, the most dangerous holes now in Melbourne, not to make double bogeys, well, even double bogeys, but the, the most dangerous holes and, and the holes that have become way more interesting in this era with this ball are the 300-yard par fours, the great, the 10th at Royal Melbourne, the 3rd at Kingston Heath, the 15th at Victoria, the 4th at Woodlands, there's a whole bunch of them in Melbourne. Now now those holes are technically within reach. So, so now they're way more dangerous. So, so, Jeff, when you're out for the President's Cup next year, the most interesting hole to watch is the 10th on the West Coast at Royal Melbourne. By it's far. a 270-yard par four, dead over the back, no good right, guns left, and you've got to hit the perfect shot to get on the green. But they can all reach it with a three-wood. Mm. So, you know, that hole is more interesting now than in 1978 when the only guy driving at the green was Ballesteros, and it was... It was amazing to watch. Greg Norman, Graham Marsh, Hale Irwin, Ben Crenshaw, everyone else, two on up the third wedge on the green. Yeah. Now it's much more dangerous. Yeah. Well, the, the but wedge... you go to the next hole, but you go to the next hole, the great 11th hole on the West Coast at Royal Melbourne, where I watched Seve hit four irons and five irons into the green. Beautiful long. I, I can still see a four iron hit nine, from right behind, 978. It's the most beautiful high soft four iron. I watched the David Michalusi, who lost the final of the Australian Amateur uh, this year play the, the tournament there last year, in January of last year, drive a wedge. No, you know, no, no appreciable wind help drive on, a wedge. On 11, the, so dog leg, the dog leg left around the corner. 11, he, he drove it over the tree on the corner. I mean, and, and it wasn't Jesus. even a big wedge. And wow. then, of course, he goes to the next hole, which the members play as a par five, which is it's ludicrous. It's a 435-metre par five. And he hit three-wood pitch. Jesus. So, well, pitching wedge. I mean, it was a 120-yard pitch. But, you know, it's just – so that's just – but that, that's missed my point that the great holes are – which are not hard to design, and I hate them when they just use the the, the default option which is put a lake by the side of the green. Yeah. You know, the, uh, uh, the 15th at Victoria, the 10th at Royal Melbourne, you know, probably the 12th at Pine Valley, Jeff, or um, the 7th at Sand Hills. I'm, I'm trying to think. You know, ten, the, the, ten second hole at, the second hole at the National Golf Links, the second at the 10th at Riviera. Yeah. All those great little vex the 10th at Marion, those great little confusing holes that what do I do now? And of course, the extra element that's been added is, well, now I can drive it on, so that's an extra element into, into what I do. They're the only holes that have been advantaged. Yeah. I, I seem to recall just on that, Clotes, on a side, I, I'm fairly certain. Did Dustin Johnson not make a seven at the 10th at Royal Melbourne West during the last President's well, Cup think, there? I think he hit it over the back with a driving on. I think, on I think, he, hit over the, I think yeah. he hit it over the green and, and never got back up the hill. No. He had two or three goes at it and just picked yeah. his ball up. Yeah, of course, right. you know, that's, the, that's the great danger of, going at that green, unless you hit the perfect shot, it goes over the back and you've got no chance, well, you've got some chance to make three from over the back, but you've got a much better chance of making three from 70 yards on the fairway. Jeff, we're talking about the 0.001%, and this is a point that those in the other camp, I'll declare it publicly, I think we're all uh, pro-rollback. I think that may be obvious to those who are listening. (laughs) So let's call it the other camp. Those on the other side of the debate say we're only talking about the 0.001%. Why would you change the game for the 0.001%, Jeff? Is that not a reasonable question? What are we talking about? Well, that's why I've I've been for bifurcation in in a tournament ball or a tournament spec. Uh, I mean, I would love it if the driver head was in the discussion too, but I don't think it it seems realistic. Um, but I understand that point of view. Uh, I think the case the USGA would make 
and that Clates and I would make that uh, the Jack Nicholas was trying to make about an overall rollback uh, would be that uh, it's irrational to think that the game will be sustainable at uh, at five hours and and just continuing to stretch out and, and the day get elongated in a world that can that that's increasingly got no attention span and. That's where Jack's coming from and where those of us who want the nine-hole round to be legitimized and um, maybe to get off the 18-hole standard, you know, to consider that that uh, that number is not a workable number for a lot of people uh, going forward. So there are, there are cases to be made that, that a, a reduction uh, in distance would allow... Of course, you then have to deal with the explanation that there is no law in the world that prevents a golf course from taking the T markers and placing them forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but people seem to be uh, that, that concept of actually pl- moving tees forward and abandoning back tees um, in a, in a, in a reduced flight situation. That's just foreign to people, which I don't quite understand. But um, so a condensing of the footprint of golf would be the, uh, the, the argument. I don't think that case Will, will be made, which is why I think you just start with the professional game and you kind of cut off this issue that we have of just continuing to expand, and then you go from there. I think that if they allowed all the companies to keep making their own ball, but but for the, the professionals, it was uh, taken back 10% that nobody would be able to tell on watching on television, except they might see a little more shot making and they, they might see if the, if the ball spun a little bit more, they might see the ball move more, but, um, you know, it's, it's, I just think the resistance to trying to do it for the overall game is, is tough. And then the other problem they have is let's say that, uh, they come up with a solution that knocks 10% off of the average PGA tour pros drive, uh, but really only knocks off, uh, one or 2% for the average golfer. Uh, then, then they'll they'll have to kind of deal with the the messy fact that uh, of saying, well, you know, these guys are getting a whole lot more benefit uh, from this stuff than the average person. Which, uh, you know, I know some people view that as embarrassing or scandalous. That, well, it's just common sense. They're just they're just they're professionals, mm. they, and the equipment and the technology is uh, designed for them. So big deal that they get uh, more of a benefit it, the problem is that the governing bodies got um, outsmarted on that we'll, we'll talk about the politics of some of that some of this shortly clates it it seems to me that talking about the 0.001 percent of changing the game because of them it feels like the game is constantly changed because of the 0.001 percent is it not courses well, are lengthened because of the 0.001 percent new courses that are built are built to cater for the 0.001 percent should they ever visit the place, I feel like that impact is not a one-way thing, that, that I feel like well, professional golf has impacted the rest of us in every facet of the game. There are a few points. I mean, green speeds have been, they've certainly gotten faster in the way, as a way to combat. But what I think Americans, Jeff, I know you do, but the average American, it's never entered his or her head, they don't even know it happened, was that in 1983, the whole, the rest of the world, aside from Canada, South America, Mexico, and the United States was forced to change from the 1.62 inch ball to the 1.68 inch ball. And they weighed the same. So 
the small ball went for the best players 25 yards further. So there's a precedent for taking 20 for, for taking in inverted commas 25 yards off everybody. Mm. In theory, that didn't happen because the average woman who hit the ball 140 yards didn't lose 25 yards. She might have lost. If any, I mean, arguably the big ball was easier to hit because it was bigger. Mm. It was certainly easier to get in the air with a three-arm, which was what they were all using back then. So the whole world has already dealt with this issue of losing distance. And the world moved on. No one gave up golf. And, you know, I think it, it seems to me that America is more obsessed than most other countries with because that's where the, the marketing and the advertising has all come from. It's all about selling distance. It's all about selling hope to the average player that this latest new thing is going to give you 25 yards. Yeah. And if the latest new thing had given us all 25 extra yards, everyone would be hitting it literally 100 yards longer. It's four times in the last 25 years. There's been an innovation that's added 25 yards. Yeah. But, of course, it hasn't had to the average player. It's almost added nothing. And, you know, I was talking about, you know, the – Mackenzie, something something very drastic ought to have been done years ago. Golf courses are becoming far too long. Now, that argument gets twisted around by the anti-rollback people and the ball manufacturers saying, look, they've been saying the same thing. You know, Mackenzie was saying that in 1930, so nothing's, nothing's changed. And in a sense, that's true, but Mackenzie, was, he could see what was coming. Yeah. And, 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 you know, he said there's no limit to science. And he said leave room behind tees because you're going to have to move tees back when the ball starts going further. But his point, Jeff, about slow play was 20 years ago, so this is 1910, we played three rounds of golf in a day and considered we had taken an interminably long time if we took more than two hours to play a round. Wow. Today, it not not infrequently takes over three hours. (laughs) Oh, oh my God. Does does everyone wish for a a three-hour round is a fantasy now. <laughs> so all those people who think the game's dying, people are giving up golf, well, perhaps they should consider that it used to be played in three hours and now it's played in five. It takes too long, it's too hard. Well, you know, perhaps Mackenzie wasn't the dumbest bloke ever to grace a no, golf course. No. I mean, I think he was a, you know, he built arguably the greatest courses in the world. Certainly his generation, Simpson, Colt, Ross, Tillinghast, left the greatest series of golf courses that, that well, arguably, I, I think, Jeff, you can make the argument that there are some guys out there now working, Bill Cord, Gil Hans, Tom Doak, who, who are leaving the same legacy. But Mackenzie and those guys left an incredible legacy, and they, they understood the game. They understood how the game worked, how it was best played. Mackenzie wrote about why people gave up golf, and they got bored with it because they weren't playing a real course. They were playing a, right. an excuse for a golf course. It was just an excuse to sock a ball around. So, you know, to disregard what these guys were writing and saying and thinking and building, is it's a, it's a grave danger to the game. But, you know, because of... Well, really, you know, is that how dumbed down the debate gets? You know, Jimmy Walker, don't take out 20 yards. I mean, really? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I'll guarantee you Jimmy Walker's never read The Spirit of St. Andrews or, oh, your book, wow. or, or your book, The Future of Golf, which is just as important. That they've mm. never... Read They've never thought no. about what the other side is saying, and they just, you know, and and I still think, you know, these guys are owned and bought by the manufacturing companies or, or company, I should say, who, you know, want the status quo to remain. And, and 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 as the anonymous tour pro who said to me this morning, 
you know, I heard a TaylorMade guy say he wants the ball to go 400 yards. Well, you know, at what point do you stand on, on the first hole when the presence comes and you've got to wait till the green's cleared? Well, yeah. the five-hour round will be a seven-hour round if that happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you know, here was McKenzie but, but going crazy about rounds that were taking more than three hours. Now yeah. five hours is the norm. When the TaylorMade guy gets his way and the ball's going 400 yards, then how long is it going to take to play golf? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let, let's let's not go there. Two two things. Fantastic to hear you ranting, Clates. It's one of my favourite things in the world. I could listen to it forever and, in fact, have. Um, let's come back to Jeff. It seems to me that one of the big whacking sticks of the anti-rollback is going to be exactly what Clates just talked about there, and Jimmy Walker's already been out saying it, as has Lucas Glover. Uh, Jeff Shackelford, Mike Clayton, Rod Murray, and anybody else who favours a rollback want to take 20 yards off you, the amateur golfer. Yeah, yeah, uh, I want to take your guns away. Oh, wait, I didn't take, go there. Oh, ta- sorry. No, yeah. you really shouldn't have. Um, <laughs> talk to that a little bit, and who is really suggesting that? Well, uh, is anybody suggesting that? Yeah, I mean, one one, uh, one company, this is not a, I just did a blog post, Titleist uh, is, is, is the only one that's putting a position out and always has. By the way, uh, I would urge you to read their their talking points. I got them in my email, and I I eventually I just didn't want to read them. I knew I, I already several people were putting them out on Twitter as their own ideas, which was embarrassing for them. Um, but when I actually sat down and read them, I was actually very comforted by the fact, and I wrote this in my blog post. That the new CEO has taken a very different tone on this than Wally Uline. And I think it's alarming that his tone is actually a more respectful, calm. Um, I don't agree with some of the points and I refuted them, but his tone is, is so much more respectable than, than what came out of um, uh, Ponte Vedra and Palm Beach from, from the PGAs. And so I was encouraged by that. However, they get people riled up, and they have a view um, that that these these bodies are out to take your distance from you, and it it, it works. It's a it makes sense, you know. It just people um, politics believe and fear it. is simple, isn't it, Jeff? It's the easiest oh, of all yeah. political things a, to run. It? It's sure, fitting. sure. Um, and it's it's a little bit amateurish. What have they got to lose, Jeff? What have the manufacturers got to lose? Why are they afraid? And it certainly seems of the notion of a uh, rollback. What 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 really will or could happen? What is it that that they think will happen? Do they think people will stop playing golf and ergo stop buying golf balls? I guess they believe that at least in the golf ball portion of things, that if the ball no longer uh, the newest ball no longer is. Uh, seen as something that will give them more distance that, I don't know, people will just buy the old ball. I, I, I don't understand the argument, uh, first of all, because um, they're making the case, and, and, and they did in these talking points, that uh, distance is flat. Well, they introduced a new ball last year. <laughs> Sorry. So a ball that too- was billed as, as longer. <laughs> longer, that's right. So... So I don't, you know, they kind of, um, you're telling us in your ads that the ball goes longer and, and, and I believe it does by the way. Um, and check, we all all know, don't we, as golf consumers, we know that every time we go and buy the Kool-Aid that is longer 
or supposed to be lying. We know, do we not? That we're not necessarily being told the truth. I mean, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. You can make anything uh, provable should you so desire in this kind of area. But we all as golfers know, do we not? We've been buying the new longer ball and driver know, for the maybe, last 20 but years. I don't know. So they're not longer. They're doing some, <laughs> they're doing some pretty impressive innovation, which we're seeing in, in the results, not in the numbers that are put out and uh, by the the, uh, the various groups that seem to all say nothing's changing. But I, I'm seeing results from, from people and hearing of results. But 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 to the to the titleist point and and their point, which Jack Nichols refuted, I have never understood it. I will never grasp it for the life of me. They are the most respected ball maker. They make the best ball. They make in the United States, uh, at least the ones that are sold here in the United States and in North America. They're beautifully made. They're consistently made. They make a great product. If if tomorrow, it was announced that the ball spec. Uh, must change in this way and that way and whatever it is that is designated to be a conforming ball, um, they would continue to be the, the, the leader. They would continue to have 40 to 50% of the marketplace. And, and some people believe they would actually uh, solidify their place and maybe even grow it, grow it if yeah. that were to happen because it is such a it's iconic, isn't it? Titleist is, <laughs> is almost a it's almost a a a, uh, a verb yeah. in a way. It's almost uh, synonymous with yeah. golf ball. Yeah. And so this is my this is where I just I just throw up my hands and I don't understand their resistance. Obviously, they've thought through scenarios. They're a very smart company, and and they see some other version of that story that is not accurate and that they would uh they would lose their market share what's ironic i have to tell you one thing so i I, what's ironic is people also keep forgetting in all this rod we have distance limits and specs all the things that all these these moronic golf pros bitch about are in place already Mm -hmm. we already have rules in place so their beef should be that we have any rules at all, uh, and that's what we tried to. You know, I brought up with Matt Adams, and he didn't rule it. He didn't rule it out yesterday. There are uh, limitations in place, so they're not working. They're being outsmarted, and the problem, of course, then in that case, is the governing bodies have to admit they're they're being outsmarted. They need to to reset. Just on that, if there was ever an ad for Titleist, it was that John Hungan admitted publicly on our I Seek Golf podcast down here a couple of months ago, Shaq. He uses a Titleist. And you won't find he plays only Titleist. You won't find a more committed really? rollback proponent than John Hungan. Well you they make the best you hmm. play Titleist too, I think, don't you? Clates? All good players no, play Titleist, don't no, they? No, I don't I don't because well I always did, but Yeah. I was. I happened to be at a, at a driving range the other day where a friend of mine works, and I needed some balls. And he's a TaylorMade guy, so I bought some TaylorMade. So I play with the TaylorMade ball now. Did you say bought? Oh, is, did you say bought? The chrome, yeah. the chrome soft is the ball that changed the okay, ball. I'll, okay, okay. <laughs> I know some guys at Callaway. I'll go and. I'll, in fact, one of one of my old caddies works at Callaway. I'll give him a call and go get some of those as well. Oh, yeah. And um, you know, we, we had an interesting back and forth with Brad Clifton, who's the editor of Golf Digest here. He's an anti-rollback guy, and he was talking about, you know, look at Golf Australia's figures from the 1980s. Look how participation is plummeting since the mid-'80s. And I said, Brad, so what you're saying is participation was at its highest when the equipment was really hard to use. 
Yeah. We only want to. We don't even want to go back to the. We want to go back to 1998. Yeah. So, so you're saying, you know, it was golf was great in 1990 in 1985, and now it's falling. Brad, that was when golf was really hard, and everything that you're arguing with us against, it doesn't make any sense. What what role, Clates, or I'll come to you on this, Clates. What role does the 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 disconnect between the touring professional and the recreational golfer like me has never it is now. We've discussed this before. In the 80s, when I was in my mid-20s, play a game that some Greg Norman did. Jack Nichols, I think, has spoken about this. You know, in the 60s and 70s, he could go to a golf club, and if he played off the very back tees and the club champion played off a set forward, they could have a good match. That's not the case anymore. What role has that played in that, do you think, Clates? Is this something that we've just overlooked completely? Because... I go out and watch golf live. I know most people experience it. I get to, you know, the New South Wales Open and the Vic Open, and there is nothing I see there that looks anything like what I experience on a weekly basis at my home club. No. The disconnect is complete. I, mean, I think Jack said he was he, he would play with the club champion, and he'd be 40 yards off the same tees. He'd be 40 yards past the club champion. Oh. I played with Lucas and Michelle the other day. He was a member at Metro Good player in the, in the state team, won the big amateur tournament at Kingston Heath in Commonwealth at the end of last year. I mean, he was, and I had the ball the same distance I always did, perhaps a little shorter, but I had a drive in a three wood to the eighth at Metro, downwind par five. I mean, a drive a nine iron. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's 80 and 100 yards past where I'm hitting it. And, and I played you know, I played a lot with Greg and Seve and Sandy Lyle and those guys in that era in, in Europe. And they were, they could hit it 40 yards past me. They were, four, they were 30, they were 20 or 30 yards past Bernard Langer and Gordon Brand and, you know, Sam Torrance was a bit longer and Howard Clark was a little bit longer, but Ken Brown was about the same. And so, but the, the long guys were 40 yards longer. I mean, now it's, you know, the, the difference between the long hitters now and the average player is it's double that at least, I, at least from my observation. But, you know, well, we were talking about it before, before we got on the air. You know, someone needs to, I think, you, you make a rolled back ball, you take the Pro V1 or the Chrome Soft or the Tote, whatever you take, and you swing the iron Byron at 80 miles an hour and you see how far the ball's carried, both balls carry. And you swing it at 81 and 82 and 83 and 99 and all the way through every one mile gap, all the way through 130, and you deal with the facts. What are the facts? How far... How far does a Pro V1 fly when the club gets swung at 80 miles an hour? And how far does a rollback ball fly when it's swung at 80 miles an hour? And you go one mile an hour all the way through to 130, and you write the numbers down, and, and Mike Davis stands up in front of the world's press with Jack Nicholas and Wally Ulon on the other side and said, here are the facts. If you swing the club at 99 miles an hour, here's how much you are going to lose. And whether it's, it might be 20 yards, it might be one yard, no one knows what it is. Well, someone knows, but, but no one's advertising it. And if you swing 100, Dustin Johnson, you swing at 130 miles an hour, how much you're, here's how much you're losing. And Sue O, you swing at 100 miles an hour, how much you're losing. Lexi Thompson, you swing at 105, you're losing this. Mm. Mike Clayton, you swing at 95, you're losing this. My mother-in-law who swings at 60, you're picking up yardage because we can make a ball that actually goes further for you. Yeah. But someone needs to deal with the facts and the numbers. And Mike mm. Davis... He used to stand there with Wally Uline and the boss of Taylor Maven Callaway and Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson and Jeff Shuggleford and Tom Doak and Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw and say, here are the numbers. What are we going to do? Yeah, this is what And I think you know, the, the guy who thinks that you're going to take these 25 yards away might be surprised at 
actually, which was what happened in 1983 when we went to the big ball. Lots of people found it was actually easier to chip with and they barely lost any yardies. It was easier to putt with. And within two weeks, it was like, this is not so bad. Hmm. Well, hello, it's not going to be so bad. No, no, indeed about that. Shaq, what's the preferred option? Oh, you, I think you probably answered this question before, but just to clarify and make it completely clear, what's the preferred option? Do you think bifurcation... We have a ball for elite... Ball for recreational play. Or do we have uh, one ball for all? <laughs> no, the ideal would be to do something with the, the overall distance standard and the, and the, and the golf ball. Um, that that's just a, a tweak that probably impacts the guys who are launching it uh, uh, 10% and, and, and barely impacts the everyday player. I don't see that happening politically, uh, so I think the next best step, and I think that uh, the likely scenario still is that spec or a, a restricted uh, spec on the ball uh, played the um, – First week in April at Augusta National Golf Club, and and the club just just mandating a, a spec, and um, and I, I I've never really thought that that would be that would happen, but I think the combination of of their uh, uh, new president being a former USGA person, mm-hmm. um, and then the LPGA Tour, PGA Tour, and PGA of America now taking uh, the side that that uh, they have. It's it's going to force the USGA and RNA probably to basically beg the Masters to, to do something. Uh, and I think the Masters will will. I think they're, they're interested in demanding their footprint. They know this is ridiculous. And Fred Ridley's a good player, and he has the ability to make that case. I don't know his position though. Um, but when you look at when you look at what they've done with mowing their fairways towards the tees and growing their fairways longer, I won't name the player. He's a very famous, famous masters champion um, who, who says they're the worst fairways on the tour um, right now. Wow. Yeah. Um, they, those fairways cannot be enjoyable for the members to be hitting shots off of this into the grain grass. The first time I ever went there, the entire place rod was like a putting green. And now you go out there, and these fairways look. I, I, I just see better fairways all the time. And, but more importantly, what that does to to slowing the ball, it works. But when you watch those old films and you see the ball running at Augusta, it makes that course harder. That's what's ironic. They've made the course easier by by con- keeping it in these confined areas, and they just it doesn't look right. It doesn't play right, and it, it has to be something they look at and just say that why why are we this is ridiculous and then and then you look at their course and they have two sets of tees which that's their thing and and the difference between their their masters tees and the members tees are just <laughs> they're incredible and it, it, they have to be looking at that and just saying this is this is silly so I would I would love to see a masters ball. That is just a little bit different than than the current ball. It spins a little bit more and probably goes. I mean, Clay, it's from an architecture point of view. I've I've thought about it, looked at a lot of holes, and even five percent would be so helpful uh, from a design point of view. I think ten would be the sweet spot, though, yeah. in terms of of um, the best golf holes and trying to get players uh, get driver hit more. And allow you to maybe widen a few things and and 
actually get certain landing areas relevant again. Yeah, and and of course five percent for I mean I keep using Dustin five percent for Dustin Johnson. Yeah, yeah or, or Bubba Watson or Dustin yeah, Thomas. Yeah, five yeah. percent for those guys is fifteen yards. So yeah, um, what never gets brought up is that's thirty yards on a par five. Right, it's a big you know, deal. So. so not only is it five percent on the drive, it's five percent on the second shot. So it's so so a, a hole like fifteen Augusta, which was such a great hole to watch Nicholas hitting one irons out and Hubert Green and you know Crenshaw whacking three wizard that green. It, it, uh, well, and, and even thirteen. I, I remember you know Freddie's oh baby shot, whatever year that was, and Watson yeah. hitting great three irons into um, thirteen and Seve and Seve's three or four on in, in eighty six. I mean, they were the great shots in golf. So, so it's even if you roll it back five percent on a par five, that's still thirty yards, which, which is still a significant number. So, still probably not quite enough. But you know, I mean, you know, Nicholas's point was, in fact, there was a bloke who was a mortgage broker who follows me on Twitter, lives in America. He said, "We'll start it." He said, "Made it, Clates. You've made it." The mortgage broker. He are said, following it. <laughs> well, he, he made the mortgage broker's point. He said. Nicholas's point was okay. He said, start at 20 as an ambit claim and work down from that. Yeah. He said, if you start at 10, they'll work you down to five. Start at 20 and work it down to 10. <laughs> pragmatic. Yeah. Uh, I love that. That's uh, so pragmatic, which begs the question, Chuck, we'll have to start to wrap it up. Uh, what will happen? Now, I note that the word you used in that uh, now famous, infamous Golf Channel debate yesterday was chaos. Um, yeah. How, how will we navigate through this? Without the game being damaged, there is a very real danger of the game being oh, damaged sure. uh, over the next six to 12 months, isn't there, with, with this debate? How do we navigate through without that happening? I think at the end of the day, are we all on the same page? Are we all, I mean, those who work in the industry generally love the game, don't they? Are there, is that, do, we, do we all want the game to survive better through this than... From what we're entering. Well, of course. I mean, that's the reason that, that we're making this case. We're not making the case because uh, we we profit, or uh, it's fun to uh, argue on Twitter with people about it. We, we're doing it because we think it's the right thing for the sport. Those, so, absolutely. So, what will happen, Shaq? What's your prediction? Uh, it's going to be ugly. They're going to uh, they're going to they're going to bicker a lot internally. I'm afraid for another year. And I, I think what I had hoped with the report uh, was. That it would it would it would be a little bit stronger, and it would lay out the groundwork for uh, they, they would they would acknowledge the state the joint statement of principles the line in the sand has been crossed there is and and the damage has has been done and we have decided we need to do to go back so we are now for the next year going to have panel discussions and conferences and get-togethers. And and polls and 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 put together all the best possible solutions. Instead, we're going to spend another year of collecting data. And I saw a piece by David Dusek at Golf Week, a very good writer of ours, and and he's right. He said, you know, now this is we they've wasted our time, and now we're going to get real data collection. Fine, great, but you know, from the perspective of people like Clayton and I, who've seen the impact on design, seen the changes, um, but have actually experienced. The, the crap that comes with trying to design golf holes for this or change holes for it, you don't, you just don't need the data to tell you these things. You already, you already know the problem and the governing bodies already know. So we're, we've, we've lost a year basically to them now having to get more data to make their case. 
And that's where I'm, I'm, and then, but I did not anticipate these positions from the PGAs to uh, come out aggressively and set that tone. And so that to me is why I say chaos. I, I can't tell where it'll go. If, if, if that's going to be the position of, of Jay Monahan and Pete Bavacqua, that to me is, uh, I, I just, I'm, I'm, it's pretty I'm, I'm so disappointed and I'm so confused and, and it's, uh, uh, a problem. The the worst yeah. case scenario would be that this ends up in court somehow, would it not, Shaq? Is that that's the worst? Thing yeah, yeah. So. And I think that's very possible. Sure, sure. The 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 yeah. There are a lot of different ways that could happen. I don't think. Uh, I only. I don't. I am. I don't know. See here, the the one thing that we we that that the mystery in all this is that the companies refuse to make non-conforming equipment. So there is some stature that the rules of golf, the USGA, and the RNA still have, and um, and I think that's something we should probably have more faith in than we do. That 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 nobody would even even dare to make non-conforming equipment, which I just don't understand. I'm shocked somebody hasn't done it, what but clearly they. Nobody uses it. Do you can buy non-conforming yeah. balls if you really want to. You yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Japan's rifle. We know that amateur game in Japan is rifle with it, sort of recreational golf. There's, there's Japan only product made by most of the manufacturers, but it is interesting that isn't it? That and yeah. golf is much better served by the system. Well, well there was. There was one famous, very famous Japanese player who, when he played in America, drove the same distance as Greg Norman. And when they went to Japan, he drove 30 yards past him, by complete coincidence. Um, if they went to court, um, what's the case? I mean, John Hopkins, as a chairman of the Board of Golf Australia, said, well, all the manufacturers got into the business knowing who, who made the rules. Yeah, USJ and the RNA make the rules. So if they go to a court case, I mean, the judge says there is no agreement that the USGA and the RNA have to ask you about the rules. They are the ones who make the rules. You got into the business knowing they made the rules. They now think there's a problem. They're now changing the rules. I don't have a problem with that. You guys need to deal with it. I mean, isn't, isn't the case uh, that's in, that feels a little well, we had, to me? There is a, it, it, well, we live in a world. Yeah. At least here in the United States, Clates, where people buy homes next to next to golf courses and then sue the golf course for for getting yeah. golf balls in the yard. There are big people who buy next to airports and complain about the noise. So, and and on, amazingly, at least in our court system, uh, even though the golf course was there, uh, if the balls are going off their property, the golf course is liable. So, what's the same? There, here? there is that. But yeah, so I think though to your to your your question, I don't think that uh, any of the manufacturers will ever sue the governing bodies. I think they will sue each other over uh, patents Ooh. and bog it all down that way. Well, that's uh-huh. okay. I think that that's just a theory, but 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 uh, that makes uh, sense. Yeah, they, they, there's one company that owns a lot of patents. I mean, uh, I mean, they've already had that fight, haven't they? <laughs> oh yeah, big time. Oh yeah, oh yeah, big time. Yeah. Uh, there was no, no love lost there, I'm sure. That was, uh, that was a pretty nasty and long and drawn out and no doubt very expensive case, which lots of lawyers no doubt won plenty out of. But, yeah, it's, it's but I, I will say this, I think so, a lot of them don't know what they do, to be honest. And just in asking questions, I don't I don't think the, they have in a In terms of the business, policy. Shaq, it, look, it, it seems pretty clear. And, I mean, Titleist have added themselves as the one company who are publicly prepared to go. We've not heard from Callaway 
Bridgestone or Strixon a position one way or the other. They right. may be against the rollback, but they've not said so. They've let Titleist take that. Well, Ping would be the interesting one to hear from because John Solheim's concept looks better and better by the day. Of a, a, there's, the, there's three balls in golf. There's the rolled back ball, there's today's ball, and there's the non-conforming ball that maybe it's bigger and it goes longer and it's for beginners and old, you know, old golfers and whoever just doesn't care about the rules. And it's clean, it's simple. Uh, the handicap system could be made to a, uh, to deal with it, and uh, they've got no dog in the uh, fight, have they? They've got no ball in that no. in that space, so they've got and, nothing, no no vested interest in that sense. Ping, uh, I suppose in that. Well, well, the view could be that they're all, they that their vested interest is uh, putting a dent in. In the in the profits of others, but, but this I is don't, the point, I don't, isn't it? I, don't, so, I think so that's a weak case. Somebody who understands the business better than I do sort of explained it to me this way the other day: is that titles have the most to lose because they're the most dominant player. If there is some sort of a reset of the ball, then the golfing public gets the notion that well, they're all back to equal now. Titles don't have yeah, the cash, that's, and that's the cash that they people. used to have, and that that is clearly their view. That's how it feels. Um, you know, they've, they've clearly invested a lot. In I just and again, I, I don't I just, agree with it. Either. It just blows my mind. But I, mean, what's yeah, the goal I don't agree with it at all. Is it a billion dollars a year? More billion bucks a year around the world would have to be spent on golf balls, wouldn't it? You would think. Um, oh, it's a yeah, lot. It's a lot. lot. Yeah, it's a real well. If, if the equipment industry is about a four and a half, five billion dollar industry, so uh, it's it's actually it's more than that now. Yeah. It's it's probably five and a half to six. Uh, that's a good question. What percentage is, is golf ball sales? I'll have to uh, look into that. Well, I lost 15 bucks worth today. So, you know. Uh, I've well, that's the other that. thing that just makes the whole the whole thing just as Clayton knows so mind-boggling. You have to buy <laughs> golf balls right. to play the game. There are three so requirements just, out there. You need a golf club, I mean, you need a golf ball, yeah. and you need confidence. Without any one of those, you can't play golf. Oh, <laughs> Two of them correct. you have to buy. So, uh, yeah, and, and that that's not going to change. So, uh, and one of them you have to buy pretty regularly. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no question about it. And I, I played with a guy today in the prime. There are, there are millions of this this guy around the world. Young, as in thirty years old, strong, smashed it. So he hit four drives, three hundred yards, and he hit four drives or five drives off the map right. A shot that you never saw with a wooden driver. So I think there's a good argument to make that. That that's that window of player, the thirty year old, twenty twenty to forty year old guy who's strong with an average technique, who wants to smash it, who hits six great drives and thinks he's a good player. They all hit four drives straight sideways right, lose four balls, and they score worse than they would with a hickory shafted driver. Because with a hickory shafted driver, they would just bump it down the fairway and never make more than a bogey. So, you know, I mean I think the ball, you know, as, as straight as it goes for good players. I don't think it's ever – I've never seen more wildly offline shots than I've seen in the last 10 years off, the, off a big-headed driver face going sideways right. So it's the club head speed, though, that isn't it, Clay? It's the, the longer shot well, with the bigger, longer yeah. head. You can swing it so much faster. Uh, and if you're a good – And there's a whole generation of guys. If you're, if you're bad there's a whole generation of young guys with, with bad technique – I mean, relatively bad technique mm. – because a player with a good technique is not going to hit it 80 yards offline, who can who hit it as hard as they can with a decent club head speed, and they hit, you know, as I said, five or six good ones, but the off-the-map ones are off-the-map, crazy off-the-map. Yeah, fantastic. So if, if, 
if you were a conspiracy theorist, you would argue they've made this driver just to have people lose more gold. <laughs> oh, Clates, uh, you're too much even for me sometimes. Uh, let's yeah, wrap up. Right. This won't be the last time we talk about this. However, it has been fantastic to sit and talk with you both again. I know there's a bunch of listeners out there who've been looking forward to hearing what the two of you have had to say. So, Shaq, it's been fantastic. I really appreciate it, and uh, we must do it again more often, as we say every time. But, yeah, and I, I hope we didn't leave people uh, uh, depressed because I there, there are there are many positives I see in a lot of this, uh, and, and so I hope we, we, we weren't too miserable and Ooh, cranky. But, yeah. What are uh, the positives? Run me through the positives. Uh, the po- here, here, I'll tell you, the, the first big positive uh, is that more good players are recognizing the issues we're talking about than ever before, mm-hmm. and more good players... And, and even just, just decent players are recognizing the importance of architecture, love golf course design, are fascinated by course setup, and all the things that go into it in a way that is allowing them to realize that, uh, that, that, that those of us who've been, uh, the, the people on this podcast are not completely insane, that we actually, there is a, a, a logic behind the, the madness. And so I, that to me is incredibly positive. I mean, look at Zach Blair. Look what, look at the awareness he's raised. Not just of great architecture, but of the fun of of some offbeat places in the game. And here's a tour pro going and highlighting these these uh, off the beaten track kind of, kind of things that that a golf pro is not supposed to be interested in. So there are there there is a shift that that is taking place. That if the USGA and the RNA can can bottle that somehow. Um, it, they they have more backing probably than they understand, understand yeah. uh, and and for, and and more than ever from 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 good players. In the past, it's always been good players who would 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 blow all this stuff off and say, "Oh, that's ridiculous." And people listen to good players. Yeah. So that's why that's why. I, the, I think it'll be fascinating. The pyramid of influence is strong, isn't it? It's really interesting that, ar- that architecture's become the new sort of bespoke corner of golf, hasn't it? I mean, you've got yeah, the, the golfers journal exactly. doing fantastic stuff. No, laying up have done some fantastic stuff. Andy Johnson does fantastic stuff at the Fried Egg. It's like everyone who lived in their own little bubbles has suddenly found each other on the internet, and it's become a bit of a movement. And I agree with you. I think that is fantastic. And Clates, I think you've been a guest on a couple of podcasts, and I mean, you're Clates, you're kind of cool. What are you, 57? No, no, not me. No, even, no, I'm 60. I'm old. I'm oh, 60. they just love the cool kids showing that him. clip of him falling on the ball. They do Come like on. that. Yeah, they yeah. do like that. But don't you um, think... Now, yeah, sorry. Funny you mentioned Zach Blair. I think we've got him on next week, hopefully, Jeff. And Rod, have we organised that yet? Well, when you say we, don't you mean you? You're the one who's got his phone number and been texting with him. Well, he, he well, he's very happy to come on. So he I, I think me we should. Australian Open, so there's no uh, point well, me approaching him. You have to do no, it. He, he, was, he was back in a second. Absolutely, I'm on state of the game. So right. yeah, we, can announce our, we can announce um, our next guest is for next week will be Zach Blair, which will be terrific. So he can throw his iron into the fire. Outstanding. So, Shaq, you're on notice. You need to find some time. I'm on notice. I'll be in Orlando, but we'll we'll figure out something to. That, actually, uh, that, that works well. Early morning here is is afternoon. That's good for us. Uh, that Orlando. Will uh, us. Early morning is uh, what? Ah, yeah. Early no, morning yeah. here is afternoon. Yeah, it's nice. The Masters for us finishes at about yeah. nine a.m. Shaq. Okay. Yeah. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. It'll be uh, it'll be great. Uh, been great to chat to you both today. Won't be the last time we talk about it. All right. Sure, but uh, thank you, Shaq. Great, great to have your time. Thank you, Rod. And Clay, it's always terrific to have your time. Thank you, Rod. Hopefully, it made some sense.
Uh, made plenty of sense, mate. I, I think there's a lot of people out there who will be listening and rewinding and listening again, which would be uh, terrific. That's it for episode 75 of State of the Game. Sounds like episode 76 is coming around much quicker than 75 did. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to your company then also here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.